All right, guys, it's good to be back after a holiday break, and it's time to talk about all things Utah sports on this brand new episode. The Utah Jazz hosted Donovan Mitchell and the Cavs and won in an impressive fourth quarter, putting them at 21-23 and 23 on the season. And Utah football ends its season with another loss in Pasadena. What do we think about the game, and what will the team look like in August? And for our weekly draft segment, what are our starting five of fast food restaurant joints? This one's, this one's going to be good. I think, I think that's going to be our best one yet. That's all coming up right now <laughs> on The Thatcher Effect. Five, four, three, two. You're listening to The Thatcher Effect with your hosts, Nate Thatcher and Richie Osler. All right, guys, here are today's Thatcher Effect headlines. Richie, take us away. All right. The Utah Jazz are, like I said, 21-23, and 23, and they sit in the 10th place in the West. After a scorching 10-4 and 4 start, they have gone 11-9, and 9, coming back down to earth. Um, 10 of their next 12 games are at home, and this next stretch of the season could define the squad's destiny, especially as we approach the trade deadline. Yeah, things are going to get really interesting with this Jazz squad. And Utah football finishes 10th in the AP poll after another disappointing loss in the Rose Bowl, this time to Penn State. But many notable players have since said that they will be returning to the team, such as Cam Rising, Brant Keithy, and Thomas Yasmin. So what can this roster do in the upcoming 2023 season? We'll discuss later on. The running Utes are currently 10-4 and four after their loss to Oregon. After a great start in conference play, things could turn around quickly for this running youth squad as they gear up to play number seven US UCLA and a pretty decent USC squad on an LA road trip. Yeah, this is a, I think again, this is a week that could define their season as well. So that'll be interesting. But I mean, big news topic. We just had the national championship, the biggest win ever in a national championship by the Georgia Bulldogs. Richie, what are your thoughts on that game? And I guess we haven't really been able to talk about the playoffs in general, but what are your thoughts on the playoffs this season and with the match between Georgia and TCU that just happened a few days ago? I think since the beginning of the year, we all kind of knew Georgia was the best team. So it's it's really no surprise that they won. Uh, I think the playoffs as a whole, the both semifinal games I thought were great. I thought Michigan versus TCU had a lot of really good moments and I thought Georgia versus Ohio State was one of the best playoff games we've seen in a, in a while. Um, I was really impressed by that. Um, I think when you look at the playoffs and what everything that happened, Georgia's massive beatdown, a lot of the commentary I've seen, mostly from fans, a little bit from analysts, is that people are ready for the expansion. Um, a lot of people don't think TCU maybe necessarily deserve to be in the playoffs. I would beg to differ. I think their win against Michigan proved that they deserve to be in the pl- playoffs. However, I just think Georgia is a different monster. And I don't I don't think really anybody in the college football sphere is going to be Georgia, was going to be Georgia this entire year. They were just – they were such a complete team. Um, but, yeah, a lot of people are talking about expansion and the playoffs and the 12-team playoff, and I think it's it's interesting – because if you did had a 12-team playoff, then all of a sudden you're looking at the likes of Alabama getting in. You're getting at the likes of Tennessee, LSU. So it's it's kind of helping the SEC in a sense because SEC fans would say that they think that they're the best conference and that they're the only 
conference that can compete with each other. I, I would beg to differ. I think every conference is competitive. Um, but we did see the SEC put on a whooping in this year's playoff, as we've seen in a couple of the last playoffs. Um, but, I mean, overall, it, I'm glad it's over. We all kind of knew what was going to coming at the end. We knew Georgia was going to win. And they really put the nail in the coffin after, like, the eighth minute of the game. Yeah, I feel like we already knew what was going to happen before it actually did. But like you said, I think the semifinal games, in my opinion, I think the two combined, that was the best semifinals we've had since the playoff was introduced in college football. I just thought it was entertaining. And, I mean, of course, lots of people love high scoring. But I just think the back and forth was was awesome. And, of course, like the storylines are always great. And I agree with you. I think TCU deserved to be in that spot. And that's like another discussion and another argument. Most of the time people are, especially with this four team format, the argument has been like, well, should it be the most deserving teams or should it be the best four teams that we know? Right. And that was Alabama's kind of argument for getting into the, not getting into the playoff this year is they believe they were one of the best teams, even though they weren't technically deserving because of the two losses, which again, you could, you could argue and say that Alabama could have given, uh, Georgia run for their money but again I think that playoff is meant for the most deserving teams and that's how it should be but moving forward I agree with the the fans and the analysts that are excited for the expansion because I think that the teams that get to the championship will have had to have won three or four consecutive games against you know top 10 um, top five opponents and maybe some of those have maybe would have had to go on the road in that first round of the playoffs in a hostile environment and get a win there. And so by the time you get to the championship, you have two teams that have proven not only that they deserve to be there, but they are the two best teams because they will have had to have beaten some really good teams for basically almost a month straight to get there, which I think will kind of make this championship more interesting and more intriguing. Um, I mean, you look at the viewership numbers for the the national championship in college football, and it has dramatically decreased basically every year since uh, the playoff was introduced. Uh, we saw an, a massive spike in that first playoff game uh, championship between Oregon and Ohio State. And this last one, I think, had less than half of that viewership, which I just think is abysmal because the sport is amazing. But man, once you get to the top four, I just feel like there's one team that is just light years above the other three and it just doesn't make for a good playoff in the end but i'm excited to see what that looks like but hey speaking about playoffs we, we got to talk nfl playoffs this is this is some good stuff going on and i think the nfl playoffs are infinitely better than college but we'll, we'll dig into that later so this segment about the nfl playoffs is brought to you by DraftKings. the nfl playoff picture is locked in and my go-to place for wild card round action and DraftKings sportsbook is the official sports betting partner of the NFL. So to kick off the road to Super Bowl 57 in Phoenix, new customers can bet just $5 and get $200 in free bets instantly. Plus, all new and existing customers can get a no-sweat bet each day of the wildcard round this weekend. Just place any NFL bet of your choice, and if it loses, you'll get a free bet back up to $10. Action so good, why bet on the NFL playoffs anywhere else? So download download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code TBPN and new customers can bet $5 on the NFL and get 200 in free bets instantly. That's only a DraftKings Sportsbook with code TBPN. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. Okay, Richie, I'm going to let you take this away. What are your immediate matchups that you like in the NFL playoff, and what are you looking forward to um, in this road to Super Bowl 57? 
honestly, looking at it closely, the first round, there are some good matchups, but it's overall a little bit disappointing. And I think a lot of that is because of the QB play. Um, you got let's, – let's look at the quarterbacks we got playing in this year's uh, NFL playoffs. You have Geno Smith playing. You got Trevor Lawrence, who I think is great. You have Brock Purdy. You have Justin Herbert. Um, the Dolphins, I don't even know who they're starting because it's not Tua. Tua's out this week, and I don't think it's Ted Bridgewater. And I'm not sure who their third string is. Um, Bills have Josh Allen. He's great. The Ravens, I don't know who they're going to start because apparently Tyler Huntley didn't practice today. And Lamar Jackson is nowhere clear, clear nowhere close to being ready. Um, so looking at and Giants-Vikings, you got two healthy quarterbacks. That's great. You got Daniel Jones and Kirk Cousins and then Cowboys-Buccaneers. You got Dak Prescott, Tom Brady. Greatest to do it. Uh, that's Tom Brady, not Dak, just to be clear. Um so looking at it, I mean, the quarterback play isn't necessarily awesome this year. Like, I feel like usually you have some really good quarterback play, and maybe that will improve as weeks go on. Obviously, Jalen Hurts and Patrick Mahomes aren't playing in the first first round, and I think they've both been two of the top three quarterbacks all season. Um, but I, I just think quarterback play is so essential, especially in the NFL playoffs. And I kind of think the teams with the best quarterbacks are going to win. And – Looking at around the games, I mean, the one that is interesting to me is Chargers-Jaguars. I think Trevor Lawrence is a little underrated. I've watched him a bit this this year. I watched him in that Thursday night game against the Jets where him and Zach Wilson had their hor- horrific duel. I mean, it just it wasn't even a duel. The, char- the Jaguars destroyed. Um but I think that will be a really good game to watch. I also think Giants-Vikings has some potential. And I think the game of the week is going to be Cowboys-Buccaneers. That's in the Monday night slot. It's kind of the game that they're most promoting. Um, I mean, Tom Brady, it's year 22. And going against the Cowboys in a really, really good defense. And, and Dak Prescott, we talked about this before uh, the show, but Dak Prescott had a t- horrible week last week. His QBR was 14. That's just ridiculously bad. He was like 37% completion. And I think if that is how he plays in that game, then the Buccaneers have a very good possibility of going to the next round. Yeah, I think that matchup for sure is the most intriguing out of the wild card. But I think some other ones that kind of looking at the playoff picture, you know, as a whole, Something that kind of stands out to me is, right, you look over um, on the AFC side and based on what you were talking about with quarterback situation with Miami and Baltimore, if if Buffalo and Cincinnati win those matchups, I believe they're slotted for a rematch um, in the divisional round, which would be interesting because that's basically a rematch of the, the game where DeMar Hamlin went down. Interesting how the emotions will play out in that one. Um, but... I feel like it's maybe a little bit like the college football playoffs in which I feel like Kansas city and Philadelphia are kind of a few tiers above everyone else that's in this. But the thing about the NFL playoffs and and that's what I love about the league so much is you look at the super bowl and it's basically two different teams every year, right? I feel like the chiefs have had a dynasty that has lasted a while, but yet they still don't, it's not like they're winning the super bowl every single year, kind of like Alabama and um, now Georgia may be doing as well. 
I think that, like you said, we're in for some really intriguing matchups because I feel like you said, the quarterback play is not elite and it's not like the NFL used to be where I feel like these team, the teams that made it to this spot of the year, I feel like you could trust your quarterback without a doubt. And they feel like, you know, they're future hall of famers, you know, you're used to the Aaron Rodgers, and you know, those types of quarterbacks always making it in. But like you said, with injuries and stuff, I feel like this is kind of interesting. The one, the, the matchup that I like is, is Seahawks Niners. I think Brock Purdy has, I don't know how he's done it, but Mr. Relevant is now very relevant going into the playoffs and has definitely made a case for him being a starting quarterback in the league moving forward. And then on the same side in the NFC, you got the Vikings who everyone's saying are frauds. You got Kirk Cousins. He's going to be in prime time now. You know, it's not 1 p.m. No one's watching Kirk Cousins. Like, it's playoff Kirk Cousins. So let's see what he can make of it. Richie, who's like your favorite to make it to the Super Bowl on both sides? Do you have the one seeds or do you have maybe some upsets of someone who's going to make it down to Phoenix? Dude, I got some upsets. Uh, I like that you talked about Brock Purdy. I think, I, I think he's really stepped up and playing his role. But more than anything, I think it's a system thing. I think that San Francisco team is really well coached. And offensively, they just have so many weapons. We've seen that Kittles has played great the last couple of weeks. They acquired McCaffrey, who's played decent. I mean, he's played great. Um, I don't know if Debo Samuel is supposed to play this week, but he's obviously a big part of their offense. And then they just have they have more, more and more guys. And their defense is really, really good. And – I don't know. Looking at them, like, I I really like it. I don't, I don't know if they're going to be the winners. I, I don't know if they're going to come out on top. Um, but I, I just – I really like what's going on there. It would obviously be a storybook ending. Uh, it, I think it would be, like, one of the first quarterbacks, maybe I, – I guess Kurt Warner's in this conversation, but the first to, um, you know, join a team midseason, kind of – first year as a starter and then win a Super Bowl. I don't know. It's just storybook. It's, it's the type of thing we'd watch on a documentary in a couple of years. So yeah, I'm taking the 49ers. Honestly, I don't think that's much of a hot take at all. If you look at their record, like they've basically been on a hot streak for almost two months now. And I actually have them going, I have them going to the Super Bowl. And for me, it's, it's a toss up in the AFC. Um, I think it's going to come down to, I don't want to bet against Joe Burrow. Like the dude's just a stud. I like his attitude, but I also really love Josh Allen and he's a competitor. I think whoever wins, um, what I predict will be a Buffalo Cincinnati matchup in the divisional round is going to go to the Super Bowl, And I have one of those two teams winning it. I'm not sure who yet. And I think this might be lame of me, but I'm going to wait until after the wild card to make my for sure bet. I'm leaning a little bit towards Buffalo right now. And again, those guys have a really good storyline leading in. Um, We'll see how that goes. But as of right now, I'm going to lean towards Buffalo just slightly. But I have the winner of that game going up against the Niners in Super Bowl 57. So it should be interesting. I think think that's a good conversation to have. And I'm excited to talk about it as it keeps moving forward. But of course, we don't talk about NFL the whole time. We talk about the Jazz. We talk about the Utes. Richie, you're our Jazz guy. Lead us in, dude. What do you what do you got for us this week for the Utah Jazz? I mean, I think it's kind of fitting to talk about what your first note was, and that's the return of Donovan Mitchell. 
I, yeah. I feel like that's that's what we got to talk about first. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So you and I were able to go to the game last night in person and witness the return of Donovan back to Salt Lake City and Vivint Arena. And leading up to, I feel like a lot of sports beat writers and fans on Twitter, right? They were not really sure how he was going to be welcomed. Um, a lot of tweets and conversations being had that there would be possible booing. And the reasons were, I feel were kind of, in my opinion, stupid. Um, if you're booing a player for political reasons, I don't believe you should be a fan uh, of sports in general. Um, I think you can differentiate between the two. Absolutely. You can disagree with certain athletes, political views, but that's just asinine to, to boo a player for how they believe personally, what he did to the franchise, how he resurrected it basically from being dead once again, after only a few years of contention or a few years of, um, a few years of uh, playoff um, eligibility with Gordon Hayward, the way he was able to bring it back in his rookie year was infectious. And that's how he became just such a star and um, a fan favorite for this franchise. And I, I just thought the welcome that he received coming back was perfect. I think it was a storybook game for jazz fans because Donovan drops 46, the jazz win on a crazy ending. And he gets the welcome back that I feel like he deserved a hundred percent. I think we witnessed one of the, I think at least what I've heard from um, ripple down the stream is that there have only been two times in NBA history where there's been a seven point possession. Um, and Jordan Clarkson was able to complete that alone last night for the jazz. I mean, the fact that they were down five and then 30 seconds later, they're up two uh, because of him is insane. Um, and I think that speaks a lot to Jordan Clarkson's mentality as a go-to guy late in the fourth. Um, I think that's what made him so valuable on those competitive jazz teams when they were they had that slot open to compete for an NBA Finals. Jordan Clarkson, having him as a sixth man, was so key to being a winning team because you have Donovan putting up the type of scoring that he always does, but then you have Jordan coming off the bench, and he's obviously going to put up mostly over 20 a night. And so that's what made the Jazz kind of set apart offensively for those few years. Uh, but last night, last night it kind of just proved to me how willing he's able to go and put up shots, um, even at times they're not falling. Um, you look at those few threes that he dropped in the fourth times when the Jazz needed him. I, I know this is a little topic, and I'll let you give your thoughts on the Donovan return. But this year, and I don't know when the rule was introduced, it could have been last year, about players entering the landing zones of shooters, I think Clarkson is one of the best to take advantage of that new rule in the NBA because if you land in the landing zone of a player that is now assessed as a flagrant foul, which is why the Jazz were able to shoot a free throw and then get possession once again, Clarkson seems to be able to know how to do this because before um, you had James Harden, right, kind of like changing his jump to jump into the defender, get his free throws. I feel like Jordan Clarkson is taking advantage of this new rule by it seems like he really jumps forward. And so it's hard for the defender to not get into his landing zone. And Clarkson's able to get to the free throw line. What are your thoughts on on Clarkson being able to take advantage of that on that rule? And obviously talk about your thoughts on Donovan's return last night to Salt Lake. Uh, I think that rule that I mean you said it he he Jordan Clarkson definitely jumps into the defender and it's kind of hysterical like last night 
he had that first one. And I don't know if they should have called that one because I think he jumped into the defender. And the second one, I think, was just a boneheaded play by Karis LeVert. Um, but that first one, he definitely jumped into the defender. And I, I realize what the NBA is trying to do here. They're trying to protect their players because of what happened in 2016 or 2017 when Zaza Pachulia went under Kawhi Leonard's legs. Um, I think the rule in that case is fine. However, we've I feel like I've seen it across the league. I've seen it watching almost every night that guys kind of do tend to jump in. And if the defender isn't like going backwards, then the rest will almost always call it a foul and call it a flagrant foul. So I don't I don't know if there's going to be some looking into that um, from a league wide perspective, but yeah, Jordan Clarkson absolutely takes advantage of that, and you know that's fine. You play the game that you're supposed to play. You play the card you've been dealt, and Jordan Clarkson's been one of the best at it. Um, as far as the overall Donovan return, I thought it was great. I thought he got the reception that he deserved. Um, I mean, we did hear like a couple boos, but you could just hear from like one or two people that were close to you or something uh, in your section. But overall, when he uh, was announced in the starting lineup, the whole stadium cheered. It was great. Um, But it kind of just made me think about Donovan Mitchell as a player and what this Jazz team gave up. Uh, He's 26. He (laughs) – that's 17 – 72-point game he had a couple weeks ago was just absurd. He had 72 and 11, accounted for the most points in a game since Will Chamberlain, um, had the most points in a game since Kobe. It's pretty crazy. Uh, 71 points, excuse me. I said 72. And he's just had a really special year. He's fit in really well with this Cavs team. He's averaging 29 points, I believe, and he's passing at a high level. Him and Darius Garland play really well together. And it's just kind of made me think of, like, some of the, of the other players where things just haven't gone completely right for the Jazz in the past. And I think this one is going to sting a little bit more than the others. When Darren Williams left, he was pretty much irrelevant three or four years after. Uh, he had a couple years in Brooklyn. He was decent one year, and then he, he dropped off pretty hard. Gordon Hayward, unfortunately, suffered a horrific injury in his first game against Cleveland. Um, or his first game while he was playing for the Celtics against Cleveland. And, you know, he has never been the same player since. He's been completely injury prone. He's completely overpaid as well. So those ones kind of in hindsight, you're like, oh, well, maybe maybe we're not going to regret that too much. Donovan Mitchell is playing at an MVP caliber this season. Uh, and he's leading the Cleveland Cavaliers to a really good record. And I think they can make some serious noise in the Eastern Conference. They have everything you need to. They have really good defenders. Um, they have offensive superstars, and the, the, their team has a really high ceiling, and I think Donovan is a really big part of that. Cleveland kind of took a gamble on him. Um, they didn't know if he was going to be this caliber of player, but the fact that he is now completely changes their plans because they're going to be able to title contend for a couple of years. They're going to be in that conversation. And from the Jazz perspective, that just kind of stings. I mean, I know we got – a lot of assets back, but how many guys in the NBA aren't top picks that are playing at the level Donovan Mitchell's playing? Because Donovan Mitchell, he was the 13th pick. Um, obviously a lottery pick, which is great. But you look at some of the other guys that are playing at, at his same level, 
or higher, it's Tatum, who was the number three pick. Luka, who was the number three pick. Um, Jokic was drafted during the Taco Bell commercial, and we don't talk about where Jokic was drafted. Giannis was a lottery pick, but he was 14. And Embiid is, was the third pick, I believe. And LeBron's the number one pick. You know, I just feel like you need a top five pick to play if you want to have a guy that's going to play at that caliber of at that caliber. And Donovan was that guy. I think the jazz might regret letting him go. I mean, the haul we got back has been amazing and we'll see what it turns into. It could be really good. Could get, it could get better and better as those draft picks materialize, but that's just going to sting, I think for a while. And that was kind of my initial thought after we had that game against Donovan where he put up 46. It's like, this guy really is a superstar. And you look at the Jazz right now, as much as I love Laurie Markkinen, and I think he's an all-star, he's not a superstar. He's not the same caliber level player that Donovan is. Yeah, I had the same thoughts watching the game last night where I feel like if I was not necessarily a Jazz fan, but just an NBA fan, Donovan's become the player where you get a ticket to an NBA game and you're like, oh, I get to watch Donovan Mitchell play now. Um, and I think that's special because as jazz fans, we were so used to watching him for years, you know, grow and evolve into the offensive caliber that he's become. Um, it kind of hit me as, you know, he's continuing to just drop bombs on us. I think he had like seven threes last night where you're like, oh yeah, you know, that's, that's typical Donovan that like, that's crazy to me. And there has been that, um, notion that after the jazz have, you know, traded a player or players left that. They haven't been as successful in their career afterwards. I think it's going to be the exact opposite of Donovan. Like you said, like he's still a young guy. The trajectory is just going way up. And I think he will be, you know, a big face of the league moving forward, especially as LeBron has less than a decade left. And I, I just think Donovan can take that, that next step and become one of the fate, like a premier face of the league, which I think if not, he's already become that this season. You look at that draft overall that he they went in though, like you have to say 100% he was the steal of the 2017 draft. Like, because I think I'd only take Jason Tatum, um, maybe before Donovan Mitchell. And even then, like, I know, I know Tatum has more accolades, you know, more attention, but, but Donovan has just become, like you said, a superstar. And I think the Jazz have a, a bright future, but I agree with you. I think that that move is going to sting. And, Again, whether or not like he wanted to stay, you just have to appreciate like what he did for the franchise uh, as a young player. And I'm I'm happy for him, you know, if he did want out as, you know, it kind of seems like he did, like I'm happy for him he's in a place that he likes now and and that's great for him, but I mean the Jazz are it's it feels like a different type of organization where I don't feel like you're going to have a ton of players that want to stay there and What's interesting to me is that like a lot of fans expect loyalty out of these players a hundred percent of the time, right? I wish I feel like every fans want that that Dame type of guy or you know Steph, you know, where you're just, you're sticking to your brand through hard times. Um, but I mean, you look at the guys that are in charge of the players, like the owners, and you have to wonder if a lot of these owners, and I'm not speaking for Ryan Smith or anything, but you have to wonder, like, a lot of these owners aren't really thinking about the fans and a lot of the moves that they're making. Like, I feel like it's business decisions, right? It's all about the money. And so I feel like it's hard for 
fans to feel like, oh, this, you know, it's it's wrong for this player to not be loyal to a franchise when I feel like the people that are in charge of the franchise, I feel, aren't loyal all the time to the fans. So I feel like it's hard to put them on a pedestal and just be like, you need to, you know, play for this team that you were drafted by the whole time, right? That's how it should be. Um, I think it's just hard in this day and age to to be that type of NBA player for for NBA fans. And I think jazz fans kind of take a little bit more personally, right? We have that small market talk and all that type of thing. Like, I just feel like we're in a new era of NBA basketball and you kind of have to go with it. And I think thanks to new ownership with the jazz that they're, you know, they're willing to trade players who don't want to be there. But I mean, Danny Ainge has just gotten a massive haul and the ownership wasn't pushing for these guys to get traded once the season ended. But I mean, when Minnesota offers you a, a package like that, like I don't think any owner, any GM in the league is going to deny that request. And so good on the Jazz. And I feel like, again, they have a bright future. I agree with you. I think that one stings a little bit um, for a lot of reasons. Speaking of like some like bright notes, I feel like um, Ochai Agbaji is, uh, has been a bright spot um, for this past week or so for the Jazz. Um you talk about a guy who hasn't been getting minutes. Um, obviously the Jazz been playing Rudy Gay a lot more. And, you know, we we joke about Rudy a lot. I mean, the guy's not really doing anything at this point. And um, but it's it was awesome to see this this rookie getting great minutes um and making the most out of it. I mean, you look at what he did um on that mini road trip that the Jazz just went on. He like you can say that Laurie Markinen, right? He had his career high, fantastic. And, you know, 10 or 11 of those points came in the last like minute and a half um, when the Rockets were basically already out of the game. But like Agbaji was the one who really set the tone in that fourth quarter to put the Jazz up and put the Rockets to bed once and for all. I mean, he just comes in and just shoots lights out. And then you go to Chicago and the guy shoots 100% from the field, four for four from three. Like he's showing promising minutes. And, I know last night he really didn't contribute, but I just feel like he's adding a new dimension to this young jazz squad. And I really like his athleticism. Um, I don't have like a lot to say about it, but I just think in comparison with him and gay, like I just think that he could be another piece that maybe the jazz keep around for a few years, maybe experiment with him kind of like what they're going to, what I feel like they're going to do with Walker Kessler and see if they really can become uh, a piece of a winning team in the NBA. Um, what have your thoughts been about Ochai in these last few games? And how do you feel like these different pieces of the Jazz can move forward, especially like you talked about with trade deadline coming up? I've, I've really been impressed with him. Um, I watched the game against the Rockets, but I was most impressed the, the game against the Bulls. That was a close game. The Bulls have been pretty hot lately, and he played really good. I mean, he didn't miss a shot the entire game, ended up with 19 points which was phenomenal. Um, like you said, he didn't commit. He didn't um, help a ton against Cleveland the other night. However, there are just a lot of things that he does that I really like. Um, so his per 30 minute stats per 36 minutes, he's averaging 12.7 points on 63% shooting uh, from, from two and, uh, 34% from three. He's taking majority threes and is only taking twos when they're pretty wide open, mostly going to the rim, dunking, which is something I like to see because in college he was a lot of a deep two-point shooter, and he's kind of changed his game a little bit. 
However, we're seeing kind of the reason why Cleveland drafted him where they did. They drafted him to be an incident contributor, to be somebody that is instantly in the lineup. And I think there's some things he does that make him such a valuable piece to have long-term. I think he's already an above-average defender. It speaks a lot to your rookie's ability when he's guarding the other team's star player. And that's what he was doing last night. He was guarding Donovan Mitchell when he was in. I think that's pretty incredible for a rookie who is barely just settling in. And I think he has a pretty high ceiling. I really have been impressed with him. I think his shot selection has been really good. This guy, he should only be shooting threes and dunks, and that's what he's been doing, and it's been great. Granted, he's gotten blocked on a couple threes. He probably needs a little bit of a faster uh, three-point shot form, but it's also year one, you know? You're going to figure these things out as you go on and on. Um, I, yeah, like I said, I've been really impressed with his defense, and I'm just impressed with the way he carries himself. I think he's been a pro through and through, and um, I'm glad that minutes are opening up for him because I think he is going to be a big part of this Jazz team's future. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I think he's been versatile and he's been able to do things for this Jazz organization early on, and I think he has a really high ceiling. I absolutely agree. Um, Richie, what's what's your top Jazz note though for this for this week? What do you feel like we should talk about? Yeah, so a lot of the buzz I've been hearing as I've listened to podcasts, as I've read stuff around the league, um, it seems like there are some expectations for the Jazz to move some pieces. So going kind of full circle with this Donovan Mitchell return, you you lost an incredible player, um, and you took a step back. And I think the step back, you know, it's been fun. We had a really good start to the season. It's gone a little bit downhill since we've found an all-star on our team um, and just an incredible turnaround season for Larry Markkinen. We've found some legitimate pieces. I think Walker Kessler is a long-term piece. I also think Agbaji is a long-term piece. I think you've also opened up the minutes for players to kind of prove their worth. I think Nikhil Alexander-Walker has played some really good minutes across this stretch and when his minutes are available, He's playing those minutes. He's playing great. He's playing on both sides of the ball. I've been impressed with him. Um, I think this Jazz team has taken a step back, but I kind of think they need to take another step back. I feel like I've subtly been on team fire sale this entire year, but I'm kind of leaning more and more into it as the trade deadline gets closer. It, the trade deadline's currently 29 days away, and – it just feels like the Jazz need to make some moves. And I think that they can be kind of the team that dictates what this trade market looks like. I think it's between them and Toronto. I think some guys that should be considered um, as valuable pieces to move include Jordan Clarkson, Mike Conley, Kelly Olynyk, Jared Vanderbilt, and Malik Beasley. I think it's a pretty small group. I think – some other guys like Rudy Gay would be too hard to move. He's probably a negative asset at this point in his career. I think Taylor Horton Tucker has some upside, but um, I kind of don't think he would get traded. I, I, I think it would be hard to trade him. Um, however, some other guys on this team have some real legitimate trade value. I think some of these guys are going to stay around. Uh, Jordan Clarkson, there's been kind of talks about his contract situation, and he hasn't agreed to an extension yet. But I think, I think a lot of that is because he can make more money 
this offseason if he doesn't agree now. Um, that has to do with kind of bird rights and where the Jazz stand on that. And so I think that'll be – I think I think he re-signs an extension this offseason. I don't think he's moved at the deadline. Mike Conley is another guy that I probably wouldn't bet to be moved at the deadline. And so that kind of leaves us with Kelly Olynyk, Jared Vanderbilt, Malik Beasley. Um, starting with Kelly Olynyk, he's, he's kind of tricky because I think he does a lot of things that teams would want. He's a great shooter. I think he moves the ball really well. And he offensively, he's just like a perfect plug and play piece. He could go into any situation and help their offense. Um, however, defensively, he's not great. Some of the teams that we've seen that might be interested in him are Kelly or the Warriors are the Heat, who he's played for, um, and some other teams like that. Those are the only two that come to mind. I think Kelly Olenek has some legitimate trade value. Um, I kind of wonder if the Warriors threw us a package of like James Wiseman and maybe a protected first round pick if that would get it done. Because I think James Wiseman is still a project and he could be a positive asset in the future, but right now it's not looking good. And they only have so long of a window with Steph, Clay, and Draymond. So I think that could be a potential trade. Um, Jared Vanderbilt is on a really good contract right now. I think he's a player that a lot of teams will be looking at. And he's just, he's the exact guy that you need on a championship team. He plays really hard on both sides of the floor. He's always making those hustle plays. You think about like a playoff setting and he would absolutely thrive in a playoff setting. Um, he does a lot on both sides of the ball that I think any team would want, especially at his contract. However, I think he has a lot of upside for this jazz team. I think he could be a really long-term piece. I've been high on him all year. Um, if I'm the jazz, I probably don't trade him for, unless it's for like two picks and a player returning. I, I think he's that good. Um, and I don't know, maybe, maybe uh, the deal looks a little bit different, but I think Jared Vanderbilt at the bare minimum is worth two first round picks. Um, Malik Beasley is the last guy I want to get to. I think if I had to bet, he's probably the jazz guy that's not on the team after the trade deadline. Um, I think. He just has, like I've talked about before, he has so many skills that every team in the NBA needs and desires. He is an incredible three-point shooter. He's kind of had a cold stretch lately, but I think overall in the season, he's been great. and You've been able to see what he can do. You know, shooters are going to have cold stretches. Um, I feel like he just is, yeah, like he's a really good shooter. He's a good scorer. It's not just his three-point shooting. He's able to drive. He's able to create plays for others. And I think Malik Beasley is a guy that can fit on almost any team in the NBA. And so I wonder if there's going to be some chatter around him, because if you look at him and maybe you add him to that new Orleans squad or that Memphis squad, I think both those teams would get better because they have Malik Beasley because they have another three point shooter. Um, so I think, I think that's definitely a piece that gets de- that gets dealt before the trade deadline. And I bet it's probably like one pick, and maybe a returning player to make the contracts work. Um, but yeah, I, it's really going to be an interesting trade deadline season. The Jazz can make so many moves and teams are going to be calling. And if we have learned one thing about this Jazz front office, they're not scared to make the right move. And that's something I really like about them. So it'll be fun to watch. Yeah, I don't think any more words need to be said, dude. That was that was like a mic drop. That was perfect. Um, so look forward to more of Richie's comments about the potential trades for the jazz coming up. I love that. Perfect. All right, well, let's, let's move on. We'll talk some Utes football again, not that much 
really to discuss in terms of game wise because the season's over. But man, dude, we're like, what a sour note to end it on again. Um, I feel like this time around in Pasadena, the Utes had a better chance to win that game. I feel like it was a better matchup. Talked about it being pretty identical on both sides, um, both offensively and defensively. Um, but I think Penn State basically just played almost a perfect game. And those two long plays really set um, them apart from the Utes. Um, and I feel like that was kind of the storyline heading into the game was that two or three or you know maybe five big plays is what was going to set apart the game. And that's exactly what it ended up being. A few defensive mistakes, and that's what cost them the game. Um, I think another big thing that showed the the weakness of this Utah team was uh, its lack the lack of depth in the QB room. And as great as Rising has been, I feel like I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want Utah fans to to murder me, but he's not like at the beginning of the season. There was talk of him being in Heisman contention and being that type of quarterback. I think. I think Rising is a solid quarterback. Um, I put him in, a, you know, a category of a quarterback that is just fits very well into a system. But I think what sets him apart in some of these games is his his competitiveness. I just think he finds ways to move the ball when the offensive scheme is not working, and that's kind of what we saw in the Rose Bowl. Was we became very one dimensional, right? We're running the ball. We've got our our passing plays and working, but when he was moving the ball, he's finding ways to move with his feet, just try and get something going. But obviously when he goes down, right, you throw in Bryson Barnes, things just aren't going to be going our way. And so I feel like after that Rose bowl game, I felt not very optimistic about the upcoming season, especially with rising's injury. I thought, especially depending on the timeline with Whittingham saying that it was going to be a very long recovery. I thought that if it was, you know, obviously going to be, of like almost a year recovery. Is it even worth coming back? But at the same time, obviously you're not going to go to the league. So I felt kind of disheartened for, for rising for a moment because I thought, wow, maybe that was like the end of his career. So I wasn't very sure about it. Um, but with rising coming back, it, it makes me a little bit more confident. Obviously the PAC 12, I believe will be the deepest power five conference in, in, in the country. Um, you can, you can put my head on a plate and say I'm crazy. I still think that the Big Ten, the SEC top dogs are infinitely better than those in the Pac-12. But on a on a deep level, in terms of consistent good teams throughout the league, I think the Pac-12 takes the cake next year. Um, rising makes me a little bit more confident, but I think it's the other players returning that made me even more confident, which is Keithy and Yasmin. Keithy elevates this Utah football team in a way that I think. Um, hardly anyone else can. Um, you could make a case for Dalton Kincaid, but Keithy was a hybrid player, and that was kind of his role in those first three games of the season. I think he just opens up the offensive playbook in a way where it's just so hard to defend Utah. And props to Kincaid for basically just destroying USC on his own. That's their fault for not knowing how to defend a basic tight end. But Keithy is such a problem for defenders, right? Like they use him in jet sweep packages. He can run streaks he can run deep he can run you know wheel routes pick routes like he just has it all and i think he changes the game offensively um looking ahead i think the 2023 team can also be really good defensively um the this utah team has basically almost everyone returning except for kincaid and phillips 
Um, and maybe Braden Daniels, if he decides to continue to go to the league, that's kind of where most people are predicting that he'll leave to go to the NFL. But man, a lot of these guys have upside, right? I haven't even mentioned that Vele is coming back on offense. I mean, you just look at this team and you have to, like they're going to get votes to be the number one team again. You have basically everyone coming back on the two-time defending champs. But man, like you look at the you look at the Pac-12 as a whole, like that, those are some, there's some teams, dude, there's some squads and, and Utah's going to have their work cut out for them. But I think, especially after that Rose Bowl loss, I think now there is room for optimism to think that this Utah football team can compete. Um, I'm not going to go out there and predict that they're going to go to the playoffs, right? I feel like my mindset was kind of there at the beginning of this last season. And I feel like that's just kind of like a, that's just an accident waiting to happen as a Utah fan. I don't think it's, you should ever expect a team to go undefeated, uh, especially in Pac-12 play. Something's always going to happen. And I feel like in the Florida and the Oregon games, Utah just shot itself in the foot and in the Rose Bowl. Um, they just shot themselves in the foot and they weren't able to win. I feel like the only game the Utes really lost was that UCLA game. Like UCLA just outplayed Utah in every facet. Um, but the other games were hard to take in because I feel like the Utes just did not help themselves in any way. And so, you know, looking at next year, Utah's got their work cut out for them. And I think it's up to these players to come down in big moments. And going back to these playoff teams, like that's really what set TCU apart. Sure, maybe they weren't the best team. Like we saw that in the, the national championship. But in the regular season, like they just found a way to win every week. and. Obviously, it wasn't always against the best of opponents, but they just always found a way, and that's what set them apart and got them into the playoff. And so if Utah really wants to make that next jump as a team and as a program, like you have to find a way to win these close games because they're going to have they're gonna have to play against good teams almost every week. Um, and I know you're going to want to talk about the youth schedule, but they're playing 11 Power 5 teams. 11. Like, Look at look at Georgia's schedule, and, and this is maybe I'm getting a little off topic here, but this is why like the SEC gets into they scheme their way into the playoff every year, is because they're scheduling, um, they're scheduling their teams like especially their top dogs, no pun intended for for Georgia, but they're they're scheduling their top teams to play like the weakest ones in the conference so they can get an easy path into this playoff. Um, the Pac-12 plays the most conference games um, out of anyone in Power Five. And the SEC plays eight and they play, they schedule um, for some of their teams, like their non-conference lower, like division three teams in November. And so it's like, if Alabama's playing, you know, these nobodies a week before they're playing Auburn, of course, they're not going to have to scheme for these division two, division three teams, like, because they can just plan for a big game late on in the year, which I just think that good on the SEC They're they're working the system. Um, I'll let you dive into Utah football schedule, but like this is Georgia football schedule next year. Sure. They don't have Stetson Bennett, but this is who they're playing. They have UT Martin at home, ball state at home, South Carolina at home, UAB at home, then at Auburn, Kentucky at home at Vanderbilt, um, by week, Florida at a neutral field in Jacksonville. Missouri at home, Ole Miss at home, at Tennessee, probably their only true road test, like game that they really probably have to prepare for. And then at Georgia Tech, like 
And then when Richie talks about the Utah football schedule, like you just have to look at the difference in depth. Like this Utah team's got their work cut out for them. And I'm interested to see how they're going to take it. Like Florida, we saw that Florida went six and six, basically how most people predicted it, but Utah still lost that game. Like nine out of 10 times Utah wins that game, but they lose it because they shot themselves in the foot early on in the season. And I feel like that kind of set the tone for some of these other big time games besides the Pac-12 championship. So Richie, what are your thoughts as Utah goes into this 2023 season? And how do you see this schedule shaping out for the Utes? I mean, you made some really good points. It is a totally brutal schedule and it's brutal from the get go. Uh, Florida at home. I think that one could go maybe a little differently than we saw it go at the swamp. You got Baylor, you playing Baylor in Waco, Weber state at home, Arizona at Arizona, Oregon state at Oregon state in Corvallis then at USC. That's a brutal stretch of games. Those three all the way games. Um, then you come back home for a nice little homestand. You play Arizona State, you play Cal, you play Colorado, Oregon, UCLA, and then you finish at Washington. It's, it's a brutal schedule. If you're looking at every team that finished ranked in the Pac-12 this, this year, we're playing every single one of them. We're playing Washington, UCLA, Oregon, um, USC, and Oregon State. I think the only decent team in the Pac-12 that we're not playing this year is Washington State. and Man, it's just going to be a, a brutal schedule. However, like you said, I feel like this Utah team has made some good changes kind of just in these first couple of weeks. I think if you're wanting to go into such a competitive conference, you really, if you're wanting to go into a competitive conference play as the previous champion, you need to improve around the edges. And I think you just kind of need to sure up some simple things. Last year, our special teams play was just so bad. And this year, we, we got a real kicker. We got a scholarship kicker. I think that's kind of one of those improvements where you're like, okay, that could maybe swing some games. That could have swung the game against Oregon. That could have swung the game against Florida. Um, I think that's something that's going to be big for Utah is having an actually decent kicker who scored over 100 points in his college career. Uh, I, I love it. I'm, I'm all in on it. I also think you've gotten some decent transfers who are going to be able to play and maybe some of them are more situational, but I think as a team, you're getting more deep and you're just improving in a lot of ways. Obviously the loss of Phillips and Kincaid, those hurt. And if Braden Daniel leaves, that hurts the O-line. However, I think we've got guys that are ready to step up. Um, Our defense came in this year pretty unexperienced and now they have a full belt, full year of Pac-12 play under their belts. And you're adding some some veterans to that. And hopefully you got some player development added to that. I think that's going to just be something that you improve on. So I know a lot of us are looking at the schedule pretty pessimistically, and I think that's fair. But I also think Utah has a really good chance at being better than they were this year. And I think they're going to have some – really good opportunities to make noise and make noise, not just in Pac-12 play, but in the country. And I mean, this is, this is the reason Cam's coming back. This is the reason Keithy's coming back in Vele and Yasmin is because they want to play a schedule like this. They want to play against the best teams and they want to earn a spot in the college football playoff. I'm not saying that's where my expectations are, but that's definitely where their expectations are. 
Uh, Keithy was talking about it on the radio the other day. That's definitely where their expectations were this last season. And so I see no reason for them to not hope for that this next season. And I think this Utah team, after all they've been through so much adversity um, on and off the field, I think they have every reason to prove the doubters wrong. So it's going to be a really fun season. And I think it's going to be a revenge season in a lot of ways. Yeah, I feel like I feel like at this point it's kind of getting to I feel like I'm expecting obviously contention for a Pac-12 championship with the Utah teams year in and year out. But this team can really set itself apart and the players wanted were excited for that Florida game at the beginning of last year because although it was expected to be a mid-tier team which Florida ended up being, you're playing an SEC opponent on the road, a win there would have set you apart. And because they lost that, and especially being ranked number seven, losing to an unranked Florida team, it just kind of set them off track. And so I think I think we're really going to see who this Utah football team can be early on in the season and, you know, those first three games. And going into conference play, they can really set a standard for themselves. I think the two key games really for me, actually, I'll, I'll kind of make it three. I feel like it's the three main road games in conference play. And I think that's at USC, at Washington, at Oregon State. I think those three road games are going to define how Utah um, does this season, right? And so we'll see how that shapes up, but I'm excited. Once again, I'm excited, right? You can't not look at this roster and just feel like there's no hope um, because I feel like this Utah team can make some noise this year. And like you said, like the players have an expectation and a goal of making it to the playoff. It's absolutely doable. But the thing is, like in these close games, not necessarily maybe at times against the best opponents, like you got to close and you got to finish. So it's got to be in your DNA to do that. And you got to kind of become the TCU of next year and finish close games. Because I feel like in the Pac-12, it's it's going to be very hard to run teams out early on. So it should be exciting to watch the Utes as they prepare for the next season. But Utes basketball is in the heat of it right now, kind of going up and down, back and forth. Rich, you talked about it. They're gearing up for a road trip this weekend. Um, what are your thoughts as they head down to Southern California to get ready for some two, two really good schools um, in UCLA and USC? Yeah, I'm, we're playing. This UCLA team is really, really good. I mean, they were a Final Four team two years ago. And they're returning most of their players. They don't have Jaime Hawkins. I mean, they, they still do have Jaime Hawkins. They don't have Johnny Juzing, who's currently playing for the Utah Jazz. Um, but they're returning a lot of guys. They're returning Jaime Hawkins. They're returning Tiger Campbell. Um, they're returning Jalen Clark, who has had a really good season this year. And they're a scary, scary team. I think they're a really, really good team. And it's going to be an absolute grind for Utah. Um Looking at the numbers, Jaime Hawkes, who I think is their best player, is averaging 16 points and six rebounds. I've seen him on some NBA boards. I think he'd probably be a second-round pick. If his three-point shooting was a little bit better, he would definitely be a first-round pick. Um, Jalen Clark, like I said, has had a great year. He's averaging 14 points, six rebounds, and doing stuff on both sides of the ball. He's currently averaging 2.6 steals per game. And Tiger Campbell, we've seen it. Tiger Campbell is like the ultimate guy that's got that dog in him. He's averaging 13 points on this year, 
And for as little as, as he is, he is just incredibly effective. Um, they will be without Amari Bailey, who was one of their five-star um, guards that came in and has been playing some decent minutes for them this year. Um, but yeah, the, they're currently ranked number seven in the nation. They played a hard schedule. They played some really good teams, um, boosting their resume. They'll definitely be a tournament team and a team to watch all season. And I think Utah's going to be going to be um, really, really struggling against this UCLA squad. Because if I'm being honest, I'm just I'm not super optimistic about where this Utah squad is right now. I think they're lacking some stuff. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't want to chalk this up as an L already, but this UCLA squad's really good. Moving on to the USC game, I think this is a little bit of a more winnable game. Um, granted, it's in USC, but they have kind of had a rough year so far. Um, they're led by Boogie Ellis and Drew Peterson, two returner, two returning starters from last year. Both of them are playing pretty good this season. Um, they're missing their five-star center, who is a freshman and came in this year. Um, however, he is ramping up, getting ready to play, and it's possible we could see him um, for his first collegiate action this weekend. I don't know. We'll see. Um, but this is kind of the win that Utah needs if they want to be serious. Um, you know, UCLA, that's it's a little far-fetched. I think we've had our top five win for the season. I don't know if we're going to get another top ten win this season. It'd be awesome, but I just don't know if that's in the cards. However, this USC team is beatable. Last year, they had Isaiah Mobley, the older brother of Evan Mobley, and I feel like he created a lot of problems in that matchup. Uh, he was blocking. He was shutting down Brandon Carlson. He was hitting from three. However, this year, they don't have him. Uh, they still have some great defenders. Their forward, star forward is Joshua Morgan. He's averaging 2.7 blocks per game. I think he's going to be a problem. I bet he would be matched up against Brandon Carlson. But overall, I, th I think this game is is pretty winnable. Um, Utah, obviously, will have to grind through it. But I think we've seen that this Utah team is able to grind through some games based on their defense alone. The real question for them is if their offense is going to hit or not. Um, when their offense isn't hitting, it's, it's a grinder. I think that's what we saw against Oregon. Uh, they shot really bad from three. They weren't able to get to the rim. It, it just was a, a pretty bad game for Oregon or for Utah against that Oregon squad. However, I think if you kind of make some of those threes, if just a couple things go right, you have a real chance at be, beating USC. So I think that's the win you want to get out of this three-game three stretch against Oregon, UCLA, and USC. And if you're able to get that win in USC, then you got to hang your hats high. That's some serious improvement from the squad. Yeah, this Utah team, I feel, has proved itself to be – it's kind of weird because I feel like in January is, is when college basketball teams really define themselves as, hey, we're competing or we're not competing. And this is the month that Utah has kind of really been up and down, um, you know, kind of going into December. But I feel like this month of January is where they can cement themselves as I believe they can be uh, like that four seed in the Pac-12 tournament. Like you look at it and I feel, again, Oregon beat Utah, but it's so weird. Like Oregon beats Utah by 10. They lose to Colorado by 30 and Colorado lost to Cal. And so it's like, man, everyone in the pack was just beating each other up in basketball. And it's brutal because it's so much harder to get into the NCAA tournament and get the credibility that you deserve. 
at this point, Utah should be considered as an NIT team, right? They're still put in bracketology as a 12 seed now. Or, and so I feel like they still need um, one or two more marquee wins against a quad one team. Uh, right now they're two and five against quad one. And obviously you can't really have that type of record and expect to make it in the tournament. Um, I, I have chalked that UCLA game as a loss, uh, but the USC team is the, is the other team that I feel matches up pretty well with Utah record wise or um, resume wise. And so a win there would be really big because you come back home and they play the Washington schools. And I think those are both very winnable games at home. And then you go on the road to Oregon's schools. And I feel like those again, Utah's got a shot at. Um, but the big thing, and I think this Oregon game really showed us once again, is this Utah team lives and dies by its shooting, right? And that's kind of generic for someone to say when it comes to basketball. But this Utah team isn't really offensively minded. I feel like they're pretty consistent on the defensive end, which is great because it can keep you in games. Um, they did pretty well. Um on the boards against Oregon, but that what that really has set them apart in games that they've won is controlling the boards. The offensive scheme though, I feel like is very easy to understand when you play against Utah, right? I feel like now we're getting to the point where Carlson's double teamed, you kick it out. But at that point, besides Madsen and Stefanovic, like who's your shooter, right? Wooster is not a shooter from outside. He's kind of gone through a little bit of a cold stretch offensively. Um, and then you could dig deep into the bench, and I feel like there's just not any shooters to really help Carlson out down low. And the big thing is when they collapse, I feel like it's up to Marco Anthony, who's basically the DeMar DeRozan of college basketball when it comes to mid-range. I mean, like I feel like that guy's is just automatic. Um, but it's hard when Utah can't shoot from outside, and that's what plagued them against against Oregon. Is I mean, when you only make three threes, like you can't expect to win a game in this era of basketball. And that's what happened to Utah. Um, you look at Madsen just was completely off. And when your number one shooter is off from outside, like you can't expect to win. And so I'm not really concerned with Utah's defense um, for most games, but it's got to come down to understanding, Hey, what do we do once Carlson's doubled up down low and how can we help him out? I just feel like it's cost too many turnovers and, a lot of careless passing of the ball or holding on to the ball where it's cost Utah points on the offensive side. Um, that being said, like I feel Stefanovic coming off the bench has really put him into his role. I think he's starting to come into his own and feel kind of like what he did last season. Um, I think his shooting has improved from what it was at the beginning of the season. And he's become a leader of this offense when it has its down points. Um, I think besides Marco Anthony, and Madsen, he's kind of become that go-to guy on the outside and uh, being able to shoot the basketball and spread the floor. I think Stefanovic has to be key in this Southern California matchup coming up. And he's got to be really a spark off the bench because I feel like Utah really hasn't gotten off to strong starts in their losses. And so he has to be a way for them to come out and come out strong. And so I'd like to see them be competitive against UCLA. Again, I'm not expecting a win, but especially against USC, like they got to be on their game because that'll be a winnable game against a great opponent that'll be put on your resume if you want to make it to the NCAA tournament. Um, but yeah, that, that for me, like that's what this Utah team has been lacking is just a, a game plan to get out of um, Carlson being doubled up down low and being able to shoot it well from outside. 
Um, for you, Richie, what do you, what do you feel like this Utah team is, is lacking or doesn't have right now to set it apart from these other teams in the conference? I think, I think what I think is maybe a little bit more big picture. Um, it's probably something that's not on this team right now. Uh, I think Carlson is a really good player. However, I think he's been it being put in situations that he's just not equipped for. I mean, Oregon, they sent like four or five double teams and it felt like every single one led to a turnover. Um, he would get a ball. He's just not making the decision quick enough. And again, that's maybe a tall ask for a player of his, of his caliber. I think, I think uh, he does a lot of things really well, but maybe quick decision-making out of the post isn't one of them. Um, I think Carlson... Like I said, I think he's been great. I think this Utah team has some legitimate pieces. However, I just feel like they're lacking a guy that can create some sort of separation, that can break down a defense. I think they lack a true point guard. Wooster's been fine. Um, he's had turnover issues at times. He's been pretty good on defense. However, he's having to play a lot of minutes during every single game, and he's having to be the guy with the ball for a lot of those minutes. You could see it kind of at the end of that Oregon game that he was gassed. Um, I think in an ideal world, he would be your backup point guard, and he'd be really, really good at it. I think he would absolutely excel as a backup point guard or as just a secondary ball handler. However, he's been the guy, he's been the guy with the ball, and I just don't think he's quite the player that is able to break down a defense. Like I think of DeLon Wright or Andre Miller. Those guys could break down defenses, and then they could set up their teammates. And it just led to really, really good offenses. However, this Utah team doesn't have one of those guys. I think you have other offensive tools. I think Madsen is a legit offensive tool, as well as Carlson. Like you said, Marco Anthony, I don't think I've ever seen him miss a mid-range jumper. It's the flattest-looking shot, but every single time it goes in. For some reason, that doesn't translate to the free throws. But, but yeah, he has that really unique skill. He's the DeMar DeRozan of college basketball. He's also a really, really good defender and somebody that you can play for pretty much 40 minutes a game. Um, and so I look at this team, like you have legit pieces. You have guys that you could put around a really good point guard and all of a sudden you're a tournament team, in my opinion. I think that's what this Utah team lacks because their defense is so good. I think they've completely figured out that side of the ball. However, offensively, they're just not creating enough separation. They're not breaking down defenses teams are figuring them out they're figuring out that Utah runs a lot of their stuff through Carlson in the post and if Carlson's not hitting his three then Utah's offense is going to pretty much fall apart so that's that's my that would be my big big thing to look for this offseason if I'm Craig Smith it's a legitimate point guard I think we've had shots at that through the transfer portal I think we were hoping Mike Saunders would be some of that would be a playmaker. Unfortunately, for whatever reason, he just hasn't been playing, and it doesn't seem like he's going to be getting minutes anytime soon. So it, it sucks, but I think that's, what this, that's where this Utah team is. And big picture, I mean, it's a long process to rebuild a program, so it's nothing that Craig Smith is necessarily doing wrong. I think it just takes some time to hit on those recruits, and I think it takes some time to hit on their transfers. Um, and so that's that's going to be big for Utah in the future. But until they have that, I just – I don't know if I can necessarily believe in this Utah team to go to a tournament. Yeah, and I feel like 
not necessarily um, not going to the tournament would be a disappointment for this team in Craig Smith's second year, especially after the year they had last year. Like, I feel like a trip to the NIT would be a success, right? Like, they won, I think, what was it, like two or three, like, conference games all last year. So the fact that they're able to do that with a, this roster this year is is awesome. And I hope that they can be able to make some sort of run and make a case for themselves. But again, like they have to make the changes, like you said, that can set them apart. And the this Utah team really has their specific roles. And it's when one of them is not performing in their role, that's when they kind of fall apart. So hopefully, let's see how they do this weekend. But Utah's, it's been exciting to see them this year only because I feel like because of the ups and downs and because of the potential that we see in them, they're a fun watch at times. So should be interesting to see how they go moving forward. But Richie, like we always do, we got to end with our draft segment. As you mentioned at the beginning of the show, this one's interesting. We got fast food joints. I feel like I feel like this could be this could be heated. I know we both have our favorites. Um, I believe I went first last time, so you get the the number one pick. So who are you gonna go with for the the first pick of the the fast food joint? Man, I'm. I'm picking the shiny new, the shiny new thing. I'm picking Raisin Cane's with my first pick. I mean, at least wow. for us, that's pretty shiny and new. Dude, that's that's kind of like a that could be a hot take by most people, but wow, I I, I don't disagree. Cane's Cane's was up there for me. Cane's Cane's on my two. How about that? Um, I'm gonna go with the face of the franchise, the LeBron, the MJ. Um, what else can you say about him? Captain of the ship. Uh, just a, a storied player, uh, really been through it all. Uh, again, face of the league. I'm going to go with Don's McDonald's. Um, he's always there for you. Um, always performs. Sometimes he has his nights off. Um, I think one part of his game, the ice cream machine never works, but other than that, dude, I, I got to go with Don's. So that's going to be my number one pick. I like it. That's a, that's a great pick. I feel like I got to go with the antithesis of McDonald's. Um, I'm taking Wendy's. I'm taking that juicy redhead over after McDonald's. I feel like it's the perfect matchup. I know McDonald's is probably a little bit ahead. They're kind of more global, but it seems like Wendy's is always kind of at the back door. We've seen the Twitter beef. We've seen everything. I just feel like Wendy's has the potential to get into McDonald's head. So I'm taking Wendy's. That's a solid choice. That's a solid choice. I like. I think it's the be- It's got the best trash talk in the game. So you got a good player there. You kind of. It's like the Dylan Brooks of the league. You know. I like it. Um, I this is gonna hurt your heart, dude. Like I know this. This could end our friendship. This could end the 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 show right now. But I'm gonna go with Taco Bell at two. Um, I know he's a personal oh, friend. Of you. He's a personal friend of yours. Um, I know you guys have had some great <laughs> games together. Some great times. Taco Bell is just like when you get the munchies. Uh, like Taco Bell is always up there. Like you, you think about them. Um, the one thing, I think the one flaw is the changing menu at times. Like you'll have your favorites and then they're gone, but it's, it's gotta be the, the crunch wrap. It's gotta be the sauce. Like it brings you back. And I'll be honest. I don't know if this is a hot take nacho fries. That's a top fast food fry in my opinion. Dude, they're pretty good. I feel like they yeah. have the perfect texture. They got like the seasoning is pretty good. Um, the cheese is hit or miss, but I think their nacho fries are pretty dang good, dude. Oh, 100%. 100%. All right, Rich, you take us away. What's your third pick? All right, my third pick, I'm picking the holy man. I'm picking Chick-fil-A. Um, you know, I just 
I love what they do. I stand with them. I, I love their business ideals. Um, I love the way that they say my pleasure every time. I just, I'm taking Chick-fil-A. You, sometimes you just need a respectable person on your team, you know? Yeah, I, I feel like they're competing for the, the face of the franchise right now. I mean, stats back them up, so uh, that's a good pick. Yeah, they, um, they definitely have a demographic that likes oh, them a lot. Uh, yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> um, am I part of the demographic? Yes, I am. Um, <laughs> let's see. With my number three, uh, this, is, this is a toss-up for me. Oh, man. Um, I'm going to go with another storied program. Um, I think someone who gives you the most bang for your buck and that's going to be Panda Express. Um, I, I just think when you give them the, you give them your money, they overload your plate and they make you feel at home. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to go with Panda at the, at the three. So that's That's gonna be my pick. Dude, that, that's a really good pick. Um, I think the bang for a buck is like a really good qualifier. And with that, I'm going to take in and out number four. I think that's like the best burger you can get per dollar. I just feel like perfect, like the dollar to burger ratio. I, I don't even know how to define it, but you know, when you see it and when you taste it, and I think in and out does it better than anybody else. Yeah. That, that's fantastic. Dude. I, I'm actually like, I really want to post these because I want to get people's thoughts. This might be our best matchup. I know we say that every week, but dude, I feel like <laughs> this is it. This is this is the one. Um, All right, four spot. This one, uh, again, I'm going with storied uh, players, right? Maybe out of date. But again, I, I just got to go with people I rely on. Fourth pick, I'm going with Little Caesars. Um, if you're ever in that pizza mood, and you just don't want to pay any money, like you got to go to Little Caesars. I'm not telling you it's the best quality, but again, like you want it quick, you want it easy. Little Caesars is your guy. Um, so I'm I'm gonna go with those guys at the four. I like it. I like it. All right, this one it's kind of more of an international prospect. Um, it is pretty domestic. However, I think their game is a lot better internationally, and that's KFC. I had KFC when I was in Ecuador. It's it's so good. It was the best food there. However, KFC here is like it's pretty mid. Um, but yeah, I think I'm gonna take Colonel and KFC as my number five. After all, they were started in Utah and they had their first location on State Street. So I'm taking KFC. We love the story behind them too. Yeah, that's true. That's like the Luka Doncic of your league, man. The the international star. I love it. Um at the five, you have a chicken program, um, of course, like the best in the business. But I'm going to go with um, – I think I like this guy's game better um, in terms of the chicken sandwich. I'm going to go with Popeye's at the five. Um, let me tell you – I, I didn't even I didn't even think about Popeye's. Dude, let me tell you. I had a spiritual experience uh, the first time I had a Popeye's chicken sandwich. Um, I was starved. Uh, it was like my 40 days in the wilderness. And let me tell you the crunch and the, that blackened ranch, it, it hits differently. And, and again, let me tell you to anyone who hasn't had a Popeye's chicken sandwich, like you're in for a spiritual experience. Um, savor it. Um, I love Chick-fil-A. I said it before, like I'm a part of the demographic. I'll go, but Popeye's I'm going to go with them at the five. That's I think that's going to be the dark horse of the draft right there. So 
I don't know, dude. I feel like we got to post these and we got to let the people know. So, dude, send them. We do. Send, I think send, you got a real steal at number five. Yeah, that that could be it. But again, I'm I'm stupid because I had Chick Fil A as my alternate number one, and I accidentally deleted it, so I totally forgot about it. And and you took that at <laughs> didn't you take Chick Fil A at three? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, that in my opinion, I think that's an automatic steal. That, that's that. Yeah, that, it's both of the chicken franchises steals the draft. <laughs> All right. Well, Richie, any final thoughts for us as we end this episode? Um, no, I hope everybody's going to be glued to their TVs this weekend. There's going to be some, some good football on some good basketball. It's just like, it's a great time to be a sports fan right now. Yeah, I'm excited. Hopefully our playoff predictions go well. All right, guys, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you guys next week.